All right, if you were listening this morning, you know we're back in John tonight. So turn your Bibles to John chapter 13. And we are in the, the middle of the narrative of what's known as the Last Supper, um, the Passover meal, the last Passover meal that Jesus and his disciples, the 12, would experience together right before Jesus' death, the following day. And so all of that drama is getting ready to unfold. And in the midst of all this, remember Jesus has, we saw last week, he has given an example of what his death will do, that it will provide cleansing. And also then because of that cleansing that his followers will experience, the true disciple, through his sacrificial death on the cross, then his expectation is that his servants, through the power of the Spirit, will be able to serve in the same way, as serve in a humble way, as Jesus was willing to do. Jesus pointed out that if the master is willing to do this, then the servant can't complain about having to do it, that it's beneath him. No, if the master does it, the servant follows along and does and follows the example of the master. Of the master. And so all of this going on, and then Jesus also then referring, he's referred a few times to what Judas Iscariot, the betrayer, is about to do. And tonight, unfortunately, we're going to see that actually take place. And remember, this is a true Passover meal, the best to look at that way, that took place Thursday evening. Jesus knows, has full knowledge of the significance of the next few days. And he's purposely and intentionally conducting himself in a manner that's made to take full advantage of his final teachings to leave his disciples with some specific information. And we're going to work through this in the next few chapters as we study John is going to be Jesus' last words before his death to his disciples. Very important. He wants them to remember things. Things are about to happen that they could not expect. In this narrative, something's going to happen that even as it happens, they're misunderstanding. They don't have a real grasp of what's going on, except perhaps one disciple. And But soon they're going to realize the full, if I can say this, awfulness of what Jesus is about to experience. And they're going to need the memory of what Jesus taught them at this time to keep them going until his resurrection and until further instruction. Now he's going to emphasize the mark of a true disciple. What is one of the essential characteristics of a follower, a true follower of Jesus Christ? And Jesus is going to make that clear. And we're also going to see two examples in disciples. One follower who did not have this trait that Jesus is going to emphasize. And one who thought he had more of a grasp on it than what he truly did. He thought of himself probably more highly than he should have. He was a true disciple, as we're going to see, but he still had a lot of growth, more than what he realized. And so, folks, through these two examples, what we need to do then is examine our own lives to see if our lives include this vital mark of a disciple. And we see this, even though we're going to start in verse 21, 
we're going to skip ahead to verse 33. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. Ye shall seek me. And as I said unto the Jews, whither I go, ye cannot come. So now I say to you, a new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. And, and remember, it's just been described, a passage we were in yesterday, as Jesus was making preparations for the Last Supper. It said he loved them until the end. Jesus is showing his disciples a perfect loving example in all that he is doing. And he will, in his death soon, show them the ultimate example. And so he says, you do the same. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. Father, very simple truth, very in some ways very easy to understand, and yet we still struggle with this. One of the basic marks that Jesus, traits that Jesus says his followers were have, he could have said so many things, and yet he says, we will be known by the love that he has shown us that now we show to each other, to fellow believers, and also the world. So as simple as this is, Lord, this is something we struggle with. Let us be encouraged and motivated through this passage tonight to do better at this, to show the fruitful work of what Jesus is doing in us by our love showing love to others, and thereby, in effect, proving that we have a relationship with God, that we are followers of Jesus Christ. We need your help to do that. And this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. The difference between a true disciple and a false disciple is this whole area of love. The mark of a true disciple is what we're looking at tonight. What is one of the most important traits of a true disciple. And first of all, we've been leading up to this moment, but we're going to see what a false disciple looks like, and it's going to surprise those around them. In fact, even as Jesus marks him and as he departs, the true disciples around him are really not going to know that this man's a false disciple. And so we're going to see that a false disciple is able to conceal his or her lack of love for Jesus and for others. And in this moment, his rejection, the rejection of this false disciple, will bring Jesus grief. Look at 21. When Jesus had thus said, and he had just spoke about being betrayed and was, was hinting to that, now he gets to the heart of it. He was troubled in spirit and testified. Again, this word of being troubled in spirit. In his humanity, Jesus is deeply troubled. Why is that? It's a deep grief that he's experiencing because he has the knowledge that a close companion will soon betray him and literally deliver him over to his death. One that has followed him faithfully for three years is about ready to do this. And don't think that this doesn't affect Jesus. Because it says he loved them until the end. And he still, as he uh, washed Judas's feet, and as he gives him honor, as we're going to see in the next few verses, amazingly, 
Jesus still gives opportunities, even though he knows what he will do. He's grieving in his spirit for this. If you've ever had somebody betray you, someone that, even someone that just disappointed you, that you expected more of, that failed you in a deep way, you have a little bit of an idea here, maybe of the grief that Jesus is going through. And now he's going to testify of this that's going on in his heart, and he's going to be much more direct with his disciples at this moment. The meal is over. He's washed their feet. And he said, verily, verily, remember that means truly, truly, this is true, I say unto you, that one of you shall betray me. And in the midst of this, a good meal, good fellowship for Jesus just to kind of come out with this out of the blue had to be astonishing for these folks. Have you ever been in the middle of a conversation and it's headed a certain direction and everybody's kind of enjoying the time and then somebody just kind of says something out of the blue that doesn't relate to the conversation at all and is just kind of puts a damper on it and you're like, where did that come from? That was kind of, we, we said that was kind of out from, from left field. I wasn't expecting that. Well, Jesus has a purpose in this. He is moving things forward. He's in charge of the time schedule that his father has given him. And now it's time to deal with this betrayer head on directly. But the disciples, they looked at one another, doubting of whom he spake. Remember in the synoptics, they even turned to Jesus. Is it me? Is it me? That mark of a sincere disciple where you, not that these disciples were perfect. Remember, they had just been recently arguing about who was the greatest. But in that moment, they're willing to humbly look at their own hearts and say, could it possibly be me? But what John focuses on here is the great disturbance among his companions. He, he portrays them as struggling to understand how can this even be possible? They're incredulous. The 12 were We're we're your closest friends, your closest companions. Jesus, how could there be a betrayer in the midst of us? You see, the betrayer has done a very good job of covering up his unbelief and his rejection. And Jesus is going to give us the mark of a true disciple here in a minute. But this disciple, this follower, has done a good job in making it look like that he's one of them. To the point, again, we're going to see, they still struggle until later with really understanding who it is. Now, in the midst of all this, in the midst of this stir and this surprise and shock, there was one, verse 23, leaning on Jesus' bosom, one of his disciples, whom Jesus loved. Now, who is this? This is the first time that John, the apostle, refers to this beloved disciple, refers to him as the disciple Well, it refers to him as the disciple that Jesus loved. And who is this? Well, from everything that we can tell, we believe this is John himself, the apostle. And so it does kind of almost come across as arrogant. If you're the guy writing this and you describe yourself then as, hey, I was the one that was next to Jesus. And it says leaning on Jesus really on his chest there. Well, what's that a picture of? Well, remember. At the Passover meal in particular, there was reclining. It was expected this meal would be a reclining meal, one that you would take slowly, that you would take your time with. So everybody was reclining, 
And from what we can tell here from the synoptics, John was to the right side of Jesus. And so he could literally, as he's reclining, remember they would hold up their head with one hand and they would eat with their other hand. He could literally lean his head back. Ooh, that makes me a little dizzy. <laughs> I have to be reclining, I guess. He could lean his head back and Jesus was right here and could literally talk to Jesus. His head was very close to Jesus' chest at that point, was able to have a more quiet, um, intimate conversation with him. And so John is here, but let's address then why he refers to himself as a disciple whom Jesus loved. Is, it, is he being prideful here? Is he saying, hey, folks, I just want to let you know that, you know, Jesus loved all his disciples, but <laughs> I'm the one that he really liked. I was a special one. Well, one thing about this is interesting. Even though he was situated next to Jesus, the um, seat of honor was actually on the left. And John is on the right here. So first of all, John, if, he's, if it's that kind of thing where he's the one that Jesus loves the most, yet he's not even in the most honored position, that kind of tells against that. But I don't think John, and under the influence of the Holy Spirit, would be in any way prideful of this. And that's why we think, well, there's got to be another reason why he would describe himself as this. And I honestly think that it's this, that he is describing himself this as one who Jesus loved because it's out of wonder and awe and amazement that he could have such a relationship with Jesus. Really, it's a humble aspect of wonder. That Jesus thought of me in that way that I was so close to him. And I think he's also saying, and you can be close to him too. Don't read this in any way as a prideful description of himself. You could also look at it this way too. Who was giving John ultimately the words to write? He was writing under the influence, so to speak, of the Holy Spirit. Now, remember uh, back in the Old Testament when Moses was writing and he was he had to refer to himself, I believe it was in the book of Exodus, or, or I think it was maybe Numbers. And he, he's writing this book, and it says a description of him that he was the meekest man on the face of the earth. Do you remember that? Now, I'm sure as Moses came to that point and he wrote that down, there was no pride in that at all. He probably thought to himself, Lord, do I really have to write that? And God says, yeah, you need to write it. So Moses, okay, I'm, I'm the meekest man, you know, whatever. And I think that's probably a little bit of this too. John is writing and the spirit directs him to write this one that Jesus loved. Okay, I'm not going to argue with the spirit. This is a legitimate title. And it shows a close bond between them, that he's close to him. And so Simon Peter, who's on the other side of John at this point, and I think maybe if we know a little bit about Peter, he's probably maybe a little jealous He's not on the other side of Jesus, but he, he goes, he leans to John because Peter, when he hears this, he's not just satisfied with uh, talking to each other. You know, what is Jesus? Who is Jesus referring to? Who does he mean? But Peter says to John, hey, psst, hey, can you ask Jesus? I mean, he's right there. Can you ask him who he's talking about? Verse 24, Simon Peter therefore beckoned to him, John, that he should ask who it should be of whom he spake. Verse 25, and he then lying on Jesus' breast said, saith unto him, that means that he leans back and he's talking to Jesus in a quiet, 
way that really none of the other uh, disciples could hear. He says, Lord, who is it? And so Peter says, John, can you ask him? John thinks, that's a good idea. I'm going to ask him. And so he says, Lord, who are you talking about? Who is it? And this is a private conversation, it seems like, then between John and Jesus. We don't get any idea that Peter ever found out the answer to his question. But it does seem that Jesus then lets John in on the answer. And he answered, he it is to whom I shall give a sop when I have dipped it. Now, what in the world is a sop? The betrayer would be the one, Jesus says, that I hand the sop to. It's a Sunday evening. Anybody have any ideas what this sop is? It doesn't have anything to do with mop. Okay. It's bread dipped in soup or another liquid. Okay. Good. Yep. Pam? Part of the Passover, wasn't there bitter herbs that they dipped in, and the bitter herbs were a reminder of something, but I'm not Jewish. I can't remember (laughs) what it is. Maybe the sins of Jewish people. I don't remember. Well, there, yeah, there, there would have been spices, probably like some sort of sauce almost from those spices. Um, and that would have been dipped, the sop, then the bread, or possibly meat, it could have been. And the host, the, the host of the dinner, or the person that owned the home that they were in, the one that was the leader that was directing the whole dinner, was there was a custom at this time that they would take a piece of bread, as the ladies just mentioned here, or meat, and dip it in some sort of herbs, like Pam said, or or some sort of sauce, and hand it to a person that they wanted to honor. And so isn't it interesting, in this, Jesus is saying, the person that I'm about to honor, show honor to, he's the one that will betray me. Now, I know this is where these types of cultural things where we just, it's really hard to understand and we just have to realize this is the case. It really was an honor because let's say I had some of you over to our home and Leslie made a wonderful meal. In the midst of that meal, I had one of you close by and I took some of my meat, picked it off my plate and dipped it in some sauce and and I handed it to you and said, you're the honored guest. Probably most of us wouldn't feel very honored at that point. We'd be like, Pastor, did you wash your hands before you touch that? You know, that's a kind that's just the way we think of today. So it's kind of hard for us to, to understand. In regards to this, it reminds me of something that I experienced when I was a single young man and I was helping out at a uh, small church. And um, we would many times after the church service go out to eat as a church family and Many times I was helping with the youth group and with the teens and the youth pastor and his wife would come and a lot of other people would go to, would come from the church and we'd go to a different restaurant, um, maybe every other Sunday. I think I ate out way too much as a single young man than I should have. So just, just for all of you young men that have money, just be careful that you could save a lot of money rather than eating out all the time. I did that too much, but anyway, I did this and The youth pastor's wife, he sat down two seats and she was sitting next to me and I ordered an appetizer and I even forget what it was now, some sort of onion thing with a a sauce. And so I, when it got to the table, I took a piece and I dipped my onion in the sauce and enjoyed that. And, oh man, that's really good. I'm going to do that again. 
And I picked up another piece. And as I was about to dip it, this youth pastor's wife who was near me was appalled. And she said, she said, well, I wasn't a pastor at that point. She said, Brock, you're not going to double dip, are you? I mean, that was nice of that person to buy that appetizer, but, and they let you have a little bit, but you're not going to just like with your bare hands, something you've touched, you're not going to double dip. And she said this like right in front of everybody. So it was a little embarrassing. And so I'm like, first of all, I thought, yeah, I shouldn't do that. And then I thought, wait a minute, I bought this appetizer. And so I carefully turned to her and I said, well, actually, I said, this is mine. I bought this. And she immediately, I'm so sorry. I thought it was so-and-so's next to you and that they were letting you have some. But the point is, I was able to do with it what I wanted because I ordered it. It was mine. Now, in, in a much more serious, sobering aspect of this, that is what Jesus is doing. He is the leader. He's the master. He can do what he wants. He can honor whomever he wants to. And folks, here is the sobering aspect of this. As we continue, it becomes obvious that most likely, do you know who is the person who is in the honored position? next to Jesus, most likely it's Judas Iscariot. Next to him, and Jesus takes this bread or this meat and dips it in the sauce. And then the end of verse 26, and when he had dipped the sop, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. And it was kind of like at the same time Jesus has washed his feet, he has given him, most likely, from what we can tell here, the place of honor. And he's given him the mark of an honored guest by giving him that song. Every opportunity that Judas had, Jesus knew what he was going to do, and he loved him until the end. And here's the thing. He still rejected him. And he still walked out that door and left him and betrayed him. Remarkable. It says, verse 27, and after the sop, Satan entered into him, and he is the tool of Satan at this point, because even after all those things, Judas chose to betray, to reject Jesus. And Jesus knew this, and then said unto him, that thou doest, do quickly. And what is Jesus saying here? He's still in charge. He knows what Judas is going to do, and he says, whatever your timetable was, what I'm saying to you now is speed it up, get going. Let's, let's start this thing. The time has come. And even what Judas is about to do is under the control of the master of Jesus. Now, Jesus knows. And from what we can tell, John, the apostle now knows because he saw this. Peter, probably not. Maybe it's the reason that John keeps repeating throughout his references to Judas Throughout John, he keeps repeating he's the betrayer because John never got over the shock of that moment because he had no idea that Judas, this follower that, that was probably um, very well respected within the group, he was the one that handled the money and we found out that he was also a thief and took the money. But none of these disciples ever thought that there was a betrayer in their midst. And of all the people, they wouldn't have thought that it would be Judas. In verse 28, now, no man at the table knew for what intent he spake this unto him. They thought he's honoring him, but then Judas gets up 
and leaves. And for some of them thought, because Judas had the bag, that means the money bag that Jesus had said unto him, buy those things that we need of against the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So all of them think, well, that's interesting. I guess Jesus asked um, Judas to go out and get something extra for the feast that we didn't have yet. Or it was a custom after the Passover meal to many times do things for the poor. So the disciples are, well, maybe he took some of the money and bought something. Jesus is having him do something for the poor. Well, that makes sense. None of them had any idea except for the Apostle John. And verse 30, then, he then, having received the sop, he went immediately out, and it was night. And folks, I think this is such a sobering picture here. When he leaves, the narrator, John, makes a point. It was night. And don't let this go by without understanding. It is a picture that John is portraying here that he went out into darkness, into utter darkness, eternal darkness. That's sobering. A disciple, a follower of Jesus for three years, and yet he wasn't a true disciple at all. And none of the other folks knew that. Later, it'd be shocked. John's shocked even as he's trying to work through this, what Jesus just told him. But he rejected him. And even as Jesus had said so many times that he was the light and, and pleaded with people to come to him so they wouldn't experience eternal darkness, Judas rejects Jesus. And now he's condemned to utter darkness and going into spiritual night for all eternity. It's also significant that at this point it was night. And I think it signifies that Jesus' darkest hour is now here. In the midst of that sobering picture, what does Jesus say? This rejection of Judas brings Jesus grief. And it's sobering, yes, and it's something that we all ought to consider. But in the midst of this, also, we find that his rejection brings Jesus glory, amazingly. Therefore, verse 31, when he was gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God be glorified in him, God shall also glorify him in himself, and shall straightway glorify him. Okay, the stage is set at this point. Passover meal is eaten. Disciples' feet have been cleansed, and now the wicked one has been removed from their midst. Everything is ready. The moment has come for Jesus to die for the people. And that's what Jesus is saying. After Judas has left, there's no more events. It's time, and now is the Son of Man glorified. And it just still amazes me. We're going to find as we continue in this gospel and hear what Jesus had to go through, the awfulness of the upcoming hours that would end in Jesus' crucifixion. And, you know, there are some pastors, and I've heard pastors in the past, that really get into a description of all that Jesus went through in the crucifixion and supply much more details than even the Gospels. All the Gospels talk about Jesus' crucifixion, but they're careful in their description because it was so awful. And I think we have to be careful in the details of this because that we focus so much on the awfulness and the torture that Jesus went through that we forget the spiritual side of things. We get distracted, but it truly was awful. And yet Jesus looks at this as an event that will bring glory to him and to the father. 
And isn't this the principle that we were talking about this morning then with Abraham? That Jesus understood in the most personal way possible that worship principle that Abraham learned in the willingness to offer up his son. Jesus was submitting to his father's plan, as awful as it was, to bring him and his father glory. And he makes it clear that God would be glorified. He would be glorified in offering up himself for the sin of mankind, and the Father would be glorified. And folks, if Jesus, if his intention and desire is to glorify his Father in all things, then it goes back to that worship aspect, doesn't it? Shouldn't we desire to worship God and to glorify him in all things, even if the things that are coming are hard? Jesus is our perfect example in that. So even these, this horrible thing where a loved follower betrays and leads him literally to his death, Jesus says, but this is still part of God's plan and I will receive glory from it. Again, God is in control of everything. Now, Jesus has one more or another aspect here to emphasize to his disciples what true followers, what the true trait is of a true follower. And that is a true disciple will demonstrate God's love to others. Look at verse 33. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You shall seek me. And as I said unto the Jews, whither I go, you cannot come. So now I say to you. Jesus here is expressing his death and soon departure in the most intimate terms. His statement to the unbelieving Jews when he said this was a warning to them. But now that he says this to his disciples, it's couched in terms of affection and preparation. This beautiful description, little children, his affection, his love for them. He's getting ready. He's preparing them for what's about to take place. I'm not going to be with you much longer. You'll seek me and you will not find me. I won't be with you, and you need to be prepared for that in in my physical state. But he's about ready to do something that will enable them to serve him in a more incredible way. And he says here, this is a new commandment now that I give unto you. You love one another as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. Well, is this really a new commandment? Well, in one sense, it's not. The idea of loving others and loving God's people is all throughout the Old Testament and even in the New Testament. So how is this a new commandment? Disciples wouldn't have heard this and said, wow, I've never thought about the fact that I should show God's love to others. That's even in the Ten Commandments, right? Well, what is this? how is this a new commandment? It's new in the sense that Jesus is referring to a new era that is dawning in which, because of his crucifixion, his sacrifice on the cross, and his resurrection, his followers will now, will then be enabled at that point, through the Holy Spirit, to love one another in a more experiential and deeper way than they ever have. Folks, because Jesus showed his love to us in his ultimate sacrifice, Jesus says, you will now be able to show my love to others, and that will be a mark. The fact is, is that Jesus' love is a defining trait, a mark of his true 
disciples. Did Judas have that? Absolutely not. Judas was able to fake it, but when it came to loving, showing Jesus love, he stole money from, his, from the disciples, from Jesus. He betrayed Jesus. There was no love of God in his heart. That essential trait of true disciples. Folks, this calls upon us to really examine our own hearts. You know what that means, in effect, is that really anybody in here could be a false disciple. You could have us all fooled, just like Judas had the other disciples fooled. You may look the part really well. Jesus was, a, or Judas was a respected man who they respected for his financial abilities and things, and yet he had no love of Jesus in his heart. So folks, if you consider yourself a Christian, and yet you have, you, you examine your heart, and you have no real love for Jesus, and you have no real love for other believers, for the church, that ought to be a stark warning to you that you need to seek God's help and, and, and decide and seek him, Lord, am I truly a disciple? Am I really one of yours? I don't really love you. And it's not a matter. We, we all would love, we, we want to love Jesus more than we do. We're learning how to do that. But if day after day, week after week, the things of God, you don't have a love for, you don't have a love for Jesus. You don't have a love for his word. You don't have a love for prayer. You don't really want to go to church, but you have to because you're forced to for reputation's sake, but you don't love being around God's people. Mark that. That's a real problem. You might in effect be a false disciple. Don't do what Judas did. But take the opportunity of Jesus' mercy and love to put your faith and trust in him truly and experience his love and show his love to others. Well, Peter was a true disciple, but Peter thought he was a better disciple than really what he was at this point. And so here's the other aspect of this, that sometimes Jesus' love certainly enables our love for others sometimes we can think of ourselves more highly than we ought to. And in fact, we can have a pride, a love of self that inhibits our love for others. So Peter, again, jumps in here. And maybe he's still a little offended that he didn't get the honorable seat next to Jesus. I don't know. But he wants to make a point. And he also wants to go back. He totally missed what Jesus said about that whole thing about loving one another. Verse 36, Simon Peter said unto him, Wait, 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 Jesus, can you go back to that part about you not being with us any longer? Where are you going to go? Where are you going? And Jesus answered him, whither I go, thou canst not follow me now, but thou shalt follow me afterwards. And Jesus repeats the fact that he is about to enter into a series of events in which Peter cannot follow him, that Peter cannot experience. One day, though, Jesus points out here, you will follow me. This will not be the time. As he points out here in a minute, Peter will fail Jesus grievously, even as a true disciple. But there will come a point where God will do a work in his life and he will be ready to pass through his own persecution that will bring God glory. And we know from church history, from what we understand, that, G that, that Peter was also crucified. Church history says that he requested to be crucified upside down. 
so that he would not die in the same manner as his Lord did. And, G and Peter at that point had been prepared by Jesus and by the Holy Spirit to accept the path that Jesus had traveled. And he followed him in that regard much later. But now is not that time. Peter's not ready to do that yet. But Peter doesn't understand. And I think he feels he's got to prove to Jesus, Lord, I'm ready to follow you anywhere. And he's sincere, but there's a subtle arrogance involved in this, that perhaps he, Lord, out of all the others, I love you enough to follow you anywhere. I love you more than they do. I'm more committed. Peter said unto him, Lord, why can I not follow thee now? I will lay down my life for thy sake. And again, the ironic thing is that's just about what Jesus is ready to do for Peter. And he has no idea. But Peter, but Jesus says very honestly, gently, but rebukes him and says, Peter, that's actually not the case. You're not as committed as you think. You're a true disciple, but you don't have as much love for me and love for the others as what you think you do. And he lets them in on a little bit of the events or what's going to happen soon. Jesus answered him, wilt thou lay down thy life for my sake? Truly, truly, I say unto thee, the cock, the rooster shall not crow till thou hast denied me thrice. Jesus rebukes him by letting him in on the truth of the near future. In actuality, Peter will not follow him. He will deny him. You know, it's easy to tell Jesus that you'll follow him when you've had a really good meal and you've had a good time of fellowship and you've had a good time of discussion and things like that. It's easy to follow Jesus today when we're in comfortable surroundings and, um, you know, we get to worship together. We go home, enjoy meals, and we go throughout our week and we have our things taken care of. But it's when things get tough that we find out how much of a true disciple, truly committed disciple we are, how much we truly love. Peter would not, be, would not show love to the other disciples. He would run away when, at the time when, uh, Jesus was at his darkest hour. He would run away from Jesus himself. He would not show the love that he said that he had for Jesus at that point. And folks, we need to soberly um, assess where we're at in our relationship and be humble is my point. Don't be so prideful in our pride and say, yeah, Jesus is lucky to have me on his team. I'll follow him to the end. Because when Jesus lets difficult things into our lives, it's at that point where he provides it as a test to see where we really are in our relationship with him. And most of the time we find that he has a lot of work left to do. In this. That we, we, we still have a lot more work as far as being the loving person that we need to be. We have a lot more work in loving Jesus. We have a lot more growth in loving other people. Don't get arrogant like Peter, but submit to what Jesus is going to do and say, Jesus, by your grace, I want to show love for others the way that you've showed me. Help me to do that. I know I'm going to fail you at some point. I know I'm not everything I should be, but, have, but give me your grace and mercy to be able to be a committed servant. And Jesus would give that grace to Peter too, wouldn't he? That's what the book of Acts is about. And Peter does amazing things um, for the Lord. 
I love quoting C.S. Lewis. How do we work this idea of loving others in a practical way? Because we all understand, we all look at our lives and say, you know, I'm not as loving as I should be. I don't love other people, other believers and other people in the world as much as I should. C.S. Lewis had a great quote on this. Do not waste time bothering about how much or whether you love your neighbor. Act as if you did. As soon as we do this, we find one of the great secrets. When you are behaving as if you love someone, you will presently come to love him. Obey Christ. Just put love into action, even if the feelings aren't there. The feelings will come eventually, but put it into action. Jesus will help us to show love towards each other. Certainly in the church, we ought to have that love. That's a defining mark. But then also to the world that needs the message of Jesus Christ. What is a defining trait of Jesus' true followers? Then they have experienced the love of Christ. And in wonder of all that Jesus has done for them, we show it to each other in the church. We humble ourselves. We serve each other. And we show it, the love of Jesus, sacrificial love to a world that is headed toward eternal darkness and has rejected God and needs the example of the love of Christ. That, out of all the things that Jesus could say is a mark of true disciple, mark the fact that he says that we must show his love toward each other. And let's ask for his help to do that. Father, this is a simple command, but it is daunting. Even in our little church, we sometimes find people that we struggle with loving, that irritate us, that bother us. And yet, Lord, if we can't even show love to each other in this small little church, then we're not really doing a very good job of distinguishing distinguishing ourselves as your followers. So help us to truly show love to each other, to other believers, and to a world that needs you. And Lord, my final prayer is that if there is one here tonight that has been putting on an act, and probably a very good act, just like Judas did. But yet they know they have no love for Christ in their heart and no love for God's people. Lord, tonight, really impress upon them their need to make their relationship with Jesus real. Do not through a false profession and false following, but through a sincere dependence and faith upon Jesus. Let tonight be the night that they get that taken care of before they fall into utter darkness. Lord, help us to take this seriously and to let your love be a defining mark of our lives. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.